Welcome to How I Got Here, a podcast from the garage at Northwestern exploring interesting journeys of young professionals working at exciting companies and the role that entrepreneurship played in getting them there. My name is Mike Rabb, and I love dissecting nonlinear and non-traditional career paths and the lessons that we can all take away from those who forge them. In this episode, I'm joined by Jared Sharon, the Vice President of Growth at Foodsmart, a Series C startup based in San Francisco. Jared's path has been a winding one, from cold calling his way into a job at McKinsey after college, to leaving consulting to do nonprofit work in a small village in Peru where no one spoke English, to founding eRetirements, a resource created to help future retirees identify their ideal retirement when he was in business school. In this conversation, we discuss self-awareness, imposter syndrome, why being a founder isn't for everyone, and the importance of finding what motivates you. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Jared Sharon. So Jared, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Of course. Um, so I actually wanted to start out. I saw on your LinkedIn that it says that you cold called your way into a job at McKinsey. Can you tell me a little bit about that story? Yeah. I What happened was I had I'd gone to Villanova for undergrad, which some people from the East Coast know, people in the rest of the country know as being a good basketball program. And they hadn't recruited... Uh, McKinsey hadn't recruited at Villanova and I'd always wanted to go work for, you know, a big consulting firm, probably some inferiority complex I had in my younger days. And I, when I started talking with some people, they were like, listen, you know, if you really want to go work there, you're not going to be able to get a job there. Just given, just to be honest, looking at your background, you're going to need to go to grad school, go to a, a, a good MBA program and then go get a job there. And I think most people would kind of be like, all right, well, I'll do that then. And for me, it was kind of like, well, you know, maybe for most people, but that's that's not, that's not how I operate. So I uh, really just started looking at a list of people who were in the Philadelphia office. Um, some people were like second connections on LinkedIn. And some were just random people who uh, contact information I found using uh, JP Morgan's, you know, uh, contact database, just looking up people's phone numbers. And I just started cold emailing, LinkedIn messaging and calling these people. And, um, I got to, I think it was like the 51st or 52nd person who eventually agreed to put my name through and pass along my resume because I'd realized putting in my resume was just a, this like black box it was the equivalent of throwing it into a, a trash can where you're just trying to submit your resumes online. So I knew I had to get a referral this guy was just kind of like, please leave me alone and I'll do this. And uh, yeah, it all worked out. Um, and so I, I'm curious how that experience compared to your expectations. Um, and I know after that, you also ended up spending some time volunteering in Peru, which seems very different than uh, consulting at McKinsey. So uh, how you arrived at the decision to do that as well. Yeah. It, McKinsey was an incredible experience, especially being a couple of years out of undergrad. I... I had questioned whether I had belonged there, felt like I was a fraud compared to most of the people, all, all of my peers that I was working with. They all went to Ivy League schools and because that, especially on the East Coast, right, that's where McKinsey had recruited from. And I found myself asking myself, do I actually belong here? But I, I quickly realized it was largely unfounded and these people weren't any smarter than me. 
right? They, they weren't special. They just had dreamed about working at McKinsey since they were in middle school. And I didn't know what it was until I was wrapping up college. But I think because of the people you're exposed to there, because the lifestyle you're exposed to jet setting around the world and flying first class and getting very expensive bottles of wine paid for and things like that. And when you're that young, it creates a bit of an unhealthy dynamic. And I had realized that one, I hadn't been spending the time I wanted to from a service aspect. I'd spent a lot of time in my younger years, whether it was at Villanova, working with Special Olympics, and even just my family, they, they were starting to spend a lot more time doing volunteer work in Africa that I was never able to join them um, to attend. And I, I realized that I had missed out on that. Um, on the other side of things, I had always wanted to go spend some time in South America to really work on my Spanish and start traveling the world more. Uh, and then I had just had this moment, you know, especially after a couple friends had made comments that I just was uh, starting to not be the more humble low-key individual that I that they had known and had started to basically some of these bad uh, lifestyle factors from McKinsey of expectations of, you know, living this first-class life had started to change who I was as a person, and I wasn't proud of that anymore. Uh, so I just was like, all right, we're, we're just going to rip the whole Band-Aid off here and uh, got connected with a nonprofit who was serving in poor communities across Africa, Asia, South America. And they were looking for someone to help with local business owners and not like local business owners, like startups. Right. But you know, these folks who own the the corner bodega, right. The guy who does the carpentry for the town, the guy who runs the funeral homes for the town or not homes, but running funerals for the town, the, guy who sells ice cream for the town, right? Most of these folks hadn't even graduated high school and they're just trying to figure out how to live. Um, and so I was like, all right, this seems like a, something that these people actually need help for and uh, seems like it'll be an interesting experience. So let's, let's go for it. Super admirable. And it sounds like you're very kind of self-aware of, of yourself and, and how you were changing. Um, and it also seems like it's kind of, I'm sure it was night and day going from the McKinsey lifestyle to, you know, helping, um, real small, like family run businesses in, in South America. Yeah. Yeah. It, I've definitely become more self-aware through the years, but I, some, a lot of good friends along the way who I trust and who's, who have not led me astray, but yes, it was, I remember getting off the plane in Peru in this small town there. Um, you know, it was like a very small plane and I was picked up by some random person who didn't speak any English. So I get off the plane. I, I just remember having this massive shock and I just felt like I couldn't breathe. It just thinking like, what did, what did I do here? And yeah, but it was, um, it was a massive change going from the lifestyle I was to, you know, I eventually just sleeping on a mattress. Eventually I got a bed, uh, you know, the, no kitchen, no heat, air conditioning, you know, cold showers, definitely no potable drinking water. And, uh, and obviously I wasn't making any money anymore. So it was, it was a, a massive difference in lifestyle, but, uh, it achieved the mission I'd wanted to, which was, I became fluent in Spanish very quickly because no one in that town spoke English. I was the first, uh, white person, anyone had ever seen in that town. And, 
uh, I had regrounded myself and remembered kind of gotten back to my roots more. Yeah, I imagine. Um, and so was it while you were down there that you decided to, to go back to business school or had you already decided to do that after this kind of volunteer engagement? I had thought I had wanted to, even after it, having gone back to McKinsey, I had still felt like I needed to have that rubber stamp on my background and my resume. Um, you know, and I think it's Villanova and it's come a long way, but I, I felt like people, and I still believe this to this day, right? You have less of a barrier that you have to overcome when you have a, a great school or great company on your resume and you're not starting from this point of having to prove to people that you're hardworking or intelligent. It becomes a given and then people, they start listing you from the get-go versus evaluating you. And I hope that the world continues to, and not everyone will agree with me, but I hope that that becomes less the case as time goes on here. But I, I realized I had wanted to do that for that reason to go back to get my MBA. This is where I had started to uh, while I was in Peru, and I, as I mentioned, I had a, lo- a lot of free time because I wasn't spending a, a lot of time with friends and things like that. And going from working at McKinsey to working at, at an, um, you know, doing volunteer work, you uh, you realize how much free time you have. And that's when I'd started working on on e-retirements, right? Uh, my, my startup at the time, and I had realized that I didn't know what I was doing. I don't think anyone really knows what they're doing. They're starting a company, but I, I think anyone who does is line um, or they've done it before. But I think for anyone doing it for the first time, I I had realized I just didn't know this and having some type of guidance and guardrails in place would have been a, a much more effective way to be successful in, in doing so, giving myself the best chance to succeed. Sure. Yeah. Um, I, I want to dive into e-retirements. How, um, what, what was the kind of grand vision behind it and, and how did that idea come about to you? While I was in Peru, uh, I was doing a Skype call with my best buddy, Justin, um, who I'd gone to undergrad with, and he was always thinking about new ideas, some good, some probably not so good. Uh, and he, we started talking about this whole issue that our parents were going through. My parents had started relocating to North Carolina uh, for retirement, and they were really struggling with it. They had, they had no friends. They were ironically isolated, not isolated in the sense that I was isolated, but they were many miles away from a a major airport. And so people weren't exactly right uh, licking their chops to come visit them immediately, given that much of a pain it was. So they were struggling with that. And then Justin's parents were starting to go through a similar process of where were they going to retire? And this massive life change was happening. They didn't realize what was going on. And we had known there was a, a massive amount of money too, um, given both of our backgrounds that the baby boomers had that clearly was going to keep growing and they had to spend it on important life things. But those things weren't always where should they take cruises? It was where are they going to live too? And we realized there really wasn't this solution out there that was pretty comprehensive to help them think through this um, from a technology standpoint. And we'd seen the after seeing the pains our parents were going through, we we thought, well, let's let's kind of like start to think what something like that might look like. So I started using my time in Peru there and uh, to start thinking about what that you know MVP might look like. And then when I was applying to business schools, that became a lot of the the foundation of it, right? Which was what my vision was for the company, how I was going to solve a problem, and recognizing the programs that the business schools had in place to really help accelerate things. 
Right. So you you uh, get into Kellogg and end up attending. So you you come into business school with uh, this at least idea of of a business that you want to start, um, and you have all these resources now. What was kind of your process to to get started and start building something? What was kind of your your process? The process started with just talking to as many people as possible. Right, people like my parents, like Justin's parents. A lot of our friends' parents were struggling with this. And so we started talking with them about what they were doing today. And we were just like, this is, this is insane. But you think about um, in your earlier years where you move, it's things like job choices, like colleges, you know, um, family, things like that. And then all of a sudden, there's not this major forcing mechanism to decide where you're going to live for retirement. And for some people, it's proximity to family. But that doesn't apply to the vast majority of them. And the rest of them, the things they were doing were just kind of crazy, right? They were like making their own grids and like criteria and like on, you know, scratch piece of paper. And then they were fighting with their spouses over it. And uh, it was some of the interviews always got interesting when they would would start arguing in front of me. I was like, all right, well, you know, I'll let you all hash this out and we'll, we'll, we'll regroup after you figured this out. So it was it was a lot of uh, customer interviews up front. It was, and then just a lot of working. Neither of us were from a, a tech background, but um, really in a very cheap form, outsourcing a a web MVP of the product so that we could, based on what we were hearing, to have something together, kind of like a straw man that people could react to to say, "Hey, is this?" Um, is, is, is this actually something that's heading the right direction? Uh, I still remember like my second day at Kellogg, I had walked into David Schoenthal's office and I, you know, I know that he had ran the Zell program as one of the prominent professors uh, on the entrepreneurship side. I remember showing it to him. He's just like, this is, this is fun, but what, what is this? <laughs> what, what is the purpose of this? And I explained to him, he's like, all right, well, I guess we have a lot of work to do here. And, and so, but it, it had at least started getting, having something that people could react to and get things moving the right direction while I was trying to figure out what that more extensive product was going to be. Yeah. And I know, um, the kind of business school can fly by pretty quickly. So, uh, what, what type of progress were you able to make, uh, as far as actually building the thing and, and making the progress, uh, that David said he needed to make? We made a lot. We made a lot really quickly. I, I, I had, this was my, you know, I, I tell people when I look back in hindsight that business school was kind of a hobby for me. And this was, you know, this was my school and this was what I had really done from a prioritization standpoint. It went, you know, e-retirements, time with friends and classmates, and then way down was classes, um, which is funny now as, you know, in my current role doing things like rebranding the company and i was thinking i was like huh pretty sure i had a class on that i'm also pretty sure i didn't attend a lot of those classes and i I wish i had done that now um but anyhow we we in the first year there we had gotten to a point where we were we had a a really exciting product um it was a web-based product that was a, a pretty personalized assessment to help people figure out based on all the factors we had heard from our customer interviews, 
Amy, you'd be surprised. People have very odd criteria that they look for when they're going to retire, right? We, we remember at one point we had to add in the assessment bird watching and like a proximity to horseback riding trails because people, for some people, that was a make or break decision. And so we had to really build this thing out pretty extensively to make it very personalized. Um, we had developed a lot of really great content on the back end to help people figure out where they should go for retirement. And then it just became how quickly can we test the different business models out? And that was where we had really, you know, where the rubber was starting to meet the road. Um, the, after the first year and the summer where people were doing internships, this is what I was working on all summer and um, really figuring out like, how do we test these revenue models as quick as possible to figure out which one is going to actually work? Um, and we, we never, we never fully figured it out, but I, you know, we, we made a lot of mistakes there would have done some things differently, but it's all a learning experience. What would you have done differently? I think the first thing is I would have, I would have had, I was, I, 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 again, talk about from a self-awareness standpoint, I knew there was such a gap in my knowledge and how to test revenue models and how to, uh, in, in a quick fashion. And so I had sought to talk to as many people as I could who were successful in the closest analogs to what we were building. The problem is I just sought too many people out, right? And then I became, and I had thought to myself, well, if these people did this and they were successful, they probably know what they were doing, which is kind of fair, but they've also never built what we were building, right? So it's not, and that's not fair to them to say, well, well they, they must've know the answer. Um, so I had, we were trying to do too many things or take advice from too many people and fulfill that advice and test all those things at once. And in reality, like we just needed to create product market fit first and foremost. And I think now it took me years to understand what that finally meant. And I think in, you know, and seeing a lot of the other founders I was working with, it was kind of one of those things people like, yeah, yeah, I got product market fit. Like check that box. In reality is most people don't, right? That's the hardest thing to do. And because we never solved that, and because we never tested the major revenue models fast enough that were associated with that, we we were not going to succeed, right? It was just um, that. So that was one thing. The second thing is we were really intent on bootstrapping the business, and so we had been approached several times. We never actively sought funding. Um, we had been approached by several times, or several times by some local Chicago VCs on, on you know, if we'd be interested um, in accepting funding, especially as we had started, you know, winning and placing competitions and things. And we had kind of just been like, no, we're good. We're good. We, we're, we're, we're fine. We got this taken care of. Um, and as such, we didn't have the resources on our end to test a lot of these things out faster and build a lot of these things out at the speed we needed to to create that product market fit and to really identify that revenue model. And, you know, all these things are a learning experience, but I, I, I think I probably would have done that differently too. For sure. Was it, was it difficult to accept when, um, you know, you, you kind of come to the realization that you're going to shut e-retirements down and, and I believe you, um, were also sponsored on your MBA. So, so you were, uh, going back to McKinsey, right? Yeah. And uh, look, I, I, 
never want to have this like woe is me situation. I was in an incredible situation where I was had to decide, am I going to decide to keep working on this business or am I going to go back to McKinsey where they're going to pay for my MBA? You know, we ended up selling it to a serial travel entrepreneur, um, which is fine. It was good to get something for it, but it was, uh, it was obviously not the massive success that we had all hoped and, and dreamed about, but I have, I have no regrets about it whatsoever. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like it was still a, a super valuable experience um, to have that and, and learn all those things um, through your retirements that, that you now know and can bring into uh, your your role now. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I would, you know, compared to what I learned at business school or what I learned at McKinsey or any of my other past professional experiences, this was by far the best learning experience I've ever had um, from a career standpoint. And I take a lot of those learnings into my role today and uh, I wouldn't be anywhere near as successful as I am today without that. Yeah. And I'd love to uh, learn a little bit more about what you're doing today. Yeah. Um, I, I think the other major learning I had while I was working on this and before I decided to go back to McKinsey was I I'd poured so much of my time into e-retirements and part of this was like a a realization as i was trying to figure out if i wanted to keep doing this and i wasn't i wasn't enjoying it anymore i was doing it because i wanted to be successful but i wasn't doing it because i actually believed that this was a problem that i felt so passionately about but I had to start to think, what is that thing that I want to pour my sweat, energy, and tears into? And uh, at the time, my um, younger brother, he was uh, struggling a lot from a mental health perspective. And there's a, a large, very high correlation between mental health disorders and chronic conditions um, obesity, diabetes, things of that nature. I also knew from a lot of research that if we could help him, if I could help him with his weight, that would directly impact his self-image, his view of himself, and and really improve his health, not just physically, but also mentally. I just became obsessed with nutrition, fitness, became a personal trainer for fun, Right, started taking nutrition courses, things like that, just to learn everything I could about it. And, you know, less than a year later, he had lost a hundred pounds. Um, he had gotten down to a healthy BMI where he still is today. And he still talks about the impact it's had on his life, uh, especially during COVID, right? Where a lot of people who've, who are struggling with obesity and chronic conditions have been more prone to hospitalizations and things. And, um, so I, I had started to realize like, wow, this this is just one person whose life I had a tremendous impact on, and I already feel a lot more fulfilled than all of my time at e at e retirements from a an impact basis. And I, I started to realize like this is what I want to do. This is what I want to dedicate what I still believe the rest of my life to. And, but I had also realized I didn't know a lot about this space. I learned a lot about it clinically. I still wasn't a doctor or anything, but I also didn't know about the end buyers of this, meaning really the health insurers and the hospital systems. So I kindly took McKinsey's generous offer, telling them that I would go back for two years. And I used that time to 
learn as much as I could about the health insurer space and hospital system. So I spent two years there. I, while I was there, I started really digging into digital health and seeing the impact that it was able to have on people and reach people at scale. But I also saw it for all its flaws and all the issues it had um, from an engagement perspective and impact perspective. While I was getting closer to wrapping up, I had uh, seen an opportunity from a, a guy who used to work at McKinsey who uh, I had reached out to and was wondering if he what he was looking for. Um, I had thought a, a product manager role was a good fit, and he was like, I don't know about that, but what do you think about product marketing? Um, I said, I don't really know much about this, but it sounds like you need someone who can use data to tell stories, and I think I can do that pretty damn well. So I joined what was at the time Zapongo, a Series B startup based in San Francisco that was really a, a meal planning or, or nutrition app um, to help people eat healthier. And uh, I don't like to say we got lucky with COVID because that can be really come off really poorly, but it's, you know, a lot of startups and like Zoom and whatnot would probably say the same thing to an even greater extent. But it was it was fortunate timing in the pivot that we had already started making. And so we had quickly started remarketing our entire organization as a telenutrition solution, uh, recognizing the massive opportunity at play as companies were shifting towards telehealth solutions. We raised our Series C investment from Advocate Aurora Health um, here in the Chicagoland area and several months ago, and we've been hiring. You know, I, I brought on a handful of people onto my team. I think we've nearly doubled in size in the last few months, and um, it's been an incredibly exciting and rewarding experience. And I look back, you know, even like when I'm slugging it out at, you know, one, two in the morning, sometimes I, it's not that I'm doing it and I'm living this moment of like, why am I doing this? Like, this is, you know, I'm, I don't care about this. It's yeah, I'm tired, but this is, this is fun stuff. And it's actually making a real impact on people's lives. And it's a major shift. Yeah, it it seems so clear kind of throughout your path how important um, impact and mission is in the work you do. And it seems like that's really motivating to you rather than draining. Yeah, I think you have to, people have to figure out inherently, like, what is it that motivates you? If you decide it's money, that's fine. But be honest with yourself, right? And ask yourself, like, is that enough to motivate you that when you're working on something in the late hours of the night, are you going to actually be excited about that? And I think for a lot of people, they they're like, well, I, I, you know, that purpose is like probably something in the nonprofit space, or it's probably some volunteer thing I have to do. And I don't believe in that at all. I think there's plenty of opportunities out there for people to be capitalists to actually make decent money and and still have an impact on the world. For sure. Um, so having having these kind of two different experiences, comparing your retirements to your current role, where you joined an early stage startup. Um, what are your takeaways from comparing those two as far as what you enjoy, uh, more from each and, and what's easier or more difficult? Yeah, I think the, the size of the company is a really important factor. I, I, I won't promise or swear this, but I would be very surprised if I ever started something from scratch again. I think a lot of it is people need to know themselves well enough and have the right self-awareness to say, 
can I actually be a, a founder of a company and put the guardrails in place that it doesn't completely take over my life? And I think when you're starting something from scratch, that's a massive risk that I saw with myself and that I see with a lot of founders. And so for me, you know, being a leader at a, a Series C startup now, it those guardrails can slip sometimes, but they are at least a lot more firm because I have a set of roles and responsibilities for me and my team. Whereas opposed if you're, you know, employee number one, two, three, four, you're doing eight different things and there are so many things you can do. And I, I do not think that's the right fit for me, but for people who can put the right boundaries in place and who enjoy that ambiguity, you know, all the more power to them. Um, I, so I, I enjoy that, that balance a lot more. I also enjoy the, mission orientation of the people that I work with, right? And e-retirements, people like we all thought this was a big problem for sure and a big opportunity. But again, there was that lack of passion around the problem and around the solution that I don't think all of us felt, some of us certainly more than others. Um, and here, like the number one thing people will say at Food Smart about why they enjoy working there is because of the mission orientation and because of the impact we're having on so many people's lives. Um, and so I like <laughs> no one at e-retirements was ever going to film a video, you know, of them in tears talking about how we changed their lives. Right. But at FoodSmart, like that, those I get to film those. And I get to see those. And that's that there's nothing more rewarding than that. Gotcha. Well, Jared, such an interesting path you've taken so far and uh, can't wait to, to see what you continue to do. But it sounds like you've found um, a mission and impact that's really fulfilling for you at the moment. And uh so grateful to have you share your story and perspective with us. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. I, I really appreciate it. The Garage and Kellogg has have given so much to my experience and were such a, a an integral part of that learning for me as I was figuring out how to make e-retirement successful, but also just how to be uh, a, a, a successful entrepreneur who <laughs> learned how to create some some boundaries and balance to make it sustainable over the long term. And there were just so many great people who, um, who had such a massive impact on, on that. And I, I carry a lot of those lessons and stories with me today and always incredibly grateful. And so I thank you for having me on here. Happy to share. Of course. It was a blast. Thanks. Thank you. If there's one lesson I would take away from Jared, it's the importance of working on something that is personally meaningful and motivating to you. Although he founded e-retirements, he wasn't personally invested in the problem his company was solving and found it difficult to sustain the energy required to run a business. After discovering his interest in nutrition and health, Jared joined an early startup in the space and is more motivated and energized by his work than he was when running his own company. If you're thinking about starting a new project, I encourage you to make sure that it is something you're personally interested in and can sustain your motivation for years to come. How I Got Here is a podcast from The Garage at Northwestern and is produced by Melissa Kaufman, Ben Williams, and Elizabeth Wright. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform.